Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Exodus. The Old Testament book of Exodus and Exodus in chapter number 31. Exodus and chapter number 31. We are now about our halfway mark in our Life and Ministry of Moses series. So the first part of it was very detailed as we saw Moses being brought up by the Lord, put into the wilderness, backside of the desert for 40 years. And now as he's brought to see the people delivered from the bondage of Israel, or from Egypt. Now as God has brought them to uh, Mount Sinai, God has delivered his law. He has allowed the people to respond to him. He has written his word for the people using Moses as the human pinman. Now God has called Moses back to himself. And for the last 40 days and 40 nights. Moses has been up on the mount of God. Spending time with God. As God has been giving him detailed instructions on the tabernacle. And now at the very end of that 40 days and 40 nights, God has a special message for Moses to deliver to the people in response to the plans that God has just given concerning the tabernacle. If you don't mind, pick it up with me in the book of Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31 And notice with me starting at verse number 12. Exodus 31 and verse number 12, the Bible says this. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbaths ye shall keep. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that ye may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. Ye shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy unto you. Every one that defileth it shall surely be put to death. For whosoever doeth any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whosoever doeth any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Wherefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. And he gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. And if you wouldn't, if you're the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a name of God that we find in the book of Exodus chapter 31? The book of Exodus chapter 31, and notice with me at the end of verse number 13 as God reveals another one of his names, the Lord that doth 
sanctify you. The Lord that doth sanctify you. With this we see the name of God, Jehovah Kadesh. Jehovah Kadesh, if you're into spelling such things, it's Jehovah, J-E-H-O-V-A-H dash Q-U-A-D-A-S-H, Jehovah Kadesh, which means the Lord that sanctifies you. The Lord that sanctifies you. And with this, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. A God who's worthy to be worshipped, worthy to be served. And as we come up to you today, I'm asking as we study one of your names that we would learn more about you and whom you are. And as we understand who you are, that we would respond properly to the God that we have. I'm asking that in a very special way that your spirit would open up our understanding of this passage. You would under, that we would have an understanding of your emphasis where you are placing and that we wouldn't try to run off on our own emphasis. And again, because I want you to get the preeminence and not me, the best I know how I surrender myself now. I ask that you fill me with your precious spirit once again and that you would get your own work accomplished this morning through your very precious word. And in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, years ago, I fell in love with the study of the names of God. Because when you know someone's name, it has meaning to you. There's something to it. For example, when I say my wife's name, Leah, there's a feelings that are associated with it. There's, there's thoughts that are associated with it. Her name has meaning to me. Now, if you don't know any Leah in your life, you're probably a sad person. But if you don't know any Leah, you may hear that name and it doesn't do anything for you. Because you don't have any personal knowledge, no personal relationship. But those names are important. As God has chosen to reveal himself through his names, each one of these names of God that are found in the Bible are purposely used. For example, we know the word Jehovah is God's personal name. And it carries the idea of the self-sufficient one. The one that doesn't need anything. It's often used as the great I am. The, the God who doesn't need anything from anyone. He doesn't need gas, doesn't need fuel. He doesn't need anything. And that's a powerful name by itself. And throughout the Bible we have very, uh, various Jehovah combinations. For example, we have Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. We have Jehovah Raphi, the Lord that sees me. We see <coughs> right here... Jehovah Kadesh, the God who sanctifies me. And so these are very important names that God has used to identify himself, to reveal some more of his character. Now with this, the first thing I want to bring to your attention is the context. Because context is king. Now this passage would be very easy to run off on two different subjects. First of all, you could take the name of God by itself outside of its context, the Lord that sanctifies me, and you could preach a good message, but you may not get the emphasis that God places. For example, we know that the idea of sanctification carries the idea of separating ourselves unto the Lord. And we're thankful that God separates us to the Lord. That God has a sanctification process that he has within our own life. In fact, the Bible gives us that there are three tenses of sanctification. 
We have past, present, and future. And they're concerning our sin. We know in the past, God has saved us from our sin. He has saved us from the penalty of our sin. That Jesus Christ died on the cross. He paid for our price. He did it a point action in time in our past. And at the time that Jesus died for us, that Jesus paid our price. He has, he has saved us from the penalty of sin. We know that we have the present tense sense of sanctification that God is saving me from sin. In that context, it's not dealing with the idea that he is saving me from my penalty, but in fact, currently he is saving me from the power of sin. What does that mean? That means as a Christian, I don't have to sin. Anytime that I sin after I've accepted Christ as my Savior, it is because I made a choice to sin. But as I get closer to the Lord and God does His sanctifying work in my life, He's helping me to sin less and less and less as I follow after Him. He saved me from the power of sin, meaning I don't have to sin anymore. I don't have to. I'm not controlled by sin. But then there's also a future work of sanctification, meaning that God will save us from our sin. So we know that God has saved us, He is saving us, and He will save us. That one day, Jesus Christ is going to come back for me as He promised. And when He does that, He's giving me a brand new redeemed body. And in this brand new redeemed body, I will not be able to sin. He's saving me from the presence of sin. I'll no longer have to save. So the Bible actually uses the word sanctification and what God does for us in three tenses. He saved me from the penalty of sin. I am being saved currently from the power of sin. And in the future, I'll be saved from the presence of sin. I told you it'd be a good message. And that's what the idea of sanctification is. But that's not the emphasis that God is placing in this passage. We know that the rest of the passage is talking about the Sabbath day. And God places a big emphasis on the Sabbath day. In fact, over and over in this passage, God says, If you work on the Sabbath, I'm killing you. Well, that means he's taking it pretty seriously. And so someone could take this and just read the context and say, Bless God, if you work on the Sabbath day, you're in trouble with God. And they could preach a message because it does say that we're supposed to honor the Sabbath. But they may put an or too much emphasis on the Sabbath. For example, we have many of our Hebrew friends, our Jewish friends, who take this thing of the Sabbath day and they put commentaries and the commentaries and the commentaries and they put so many restrictions on them that, for example, to turn on a light in a Hebrew home is considered work. Well, you have a problem with that because we have lots of lights that need to go on. And so what they have to do is they have to turn on all the lights that they want on for the rest of that Sabbath right before sundown. Remember for the Hebrew people their day starts on sundown. So whatever lights they're going to have on for the Sabbath day they have to already have on. Otherwise they're going to have to be in darkness. Now you think about your refrigerator. What happens when your refrigerator uh, open it up? Well, if it's working right, you have a light that comes on. Well, that's considered work. So for the Hebrew people, they actually have to, before the Sabbath, unscrew their light bulb in the refrigerator so it doesn't turn on to do work. Now, what has happened is that they've put an overemphasis 
on the Sabbath day and miss the context of what is preached. So what is the context? Context is key. If it's not putting the emphasis on God sanctifying us, if it's not placing the emphasis on the Sabbath day, what is the context? Well, remember where they're at. They're at Mount Sinai. The people are surrounding around. God has already given the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And God has already had them write down the word of God, agree to the word of God. We've covered that previously. But from Exodus chapter 24, God um, has called Moses to himself. And for the next 40 days and 40 nights, God is not giving Moses the law. But instead, for the next 40 days and 40 nights, God is giving Moses the plans, the blueprints for the tabernacle. And we just got through talking about the tabernacle on Wednesday night. But God has given the plans for the tabernacle. Remember that there are more passages dedicated to the tabernacle and temple than any other subject in the Bible. And God has given specific instructions how to build the tabernacle, what materials to use. He even told them what person to use to make the items. Someone said that the tabernacle was the only perfect building because it came from God's blueprints and design, that God designed the building. And so for the last several chapters, God has been telling Moses to build the tabernacle. Here's what I want you to do. Chapter after chapter, he's talking about the walls, the furniture, the courtyard, the high priest, the garments. He's giving all of these plans. And now at the end of it, God pulls Moses aside and says, now I want you to tell something. I want to give you this thing here. I want to give you a command. So the first thing that we saw is the context. What's the context? The context is that God has just got through giving the plans for the tabernacle for the last 40 days and 40 nights. What is the command? Notice the command, if you don't mind, in verse number 13. Speak thou also to the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbaths ye shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you, between me and you throughout your generations, that ye may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. Now, after getting these plans, at the very end, still tacking on with the plans, God says, I don't want you to forget my Sabbaths. You say, all right, well, how does this relate together? For the next nine months... What is going to be happening for the next nine months is the children of Israel are going to be building the tabernacle. They're going to be constructing it. They're going to put it together. They're going to uh, make the, carve the things out of shit and wood. They're going to cover it with gold. They're going to gather up an offering. They're going to sew this together. They're going to put this together. For the next nine months, they're going to be building the tabernacle. And so here's the command. In the next nine months, you're going to be busy doing things for me that I don't want you to fail to spend time with me. This is the emphasis that God is placing. That we often fall into this trap. We get so busy doing things for God that we fail to spend time with God. Remember the whole purpose of why God created us in the first place was so that way we can fellowship with God. Sin, unfortunately, separated us from God. So Jesus died on the cross to restore that fellowship. God wants to spend time with 
us. And so God knows human humanity. He knows that sometimes, especially us guys, we get busy working that, that we get a one-track mind. We've got to get the job done. Got to get the job done. Got to work. Got to work. Got to work. And we satisfy ourselves that why am I doing this work? I'm not doing it for a bad reason. I'm not doing it for a selfish reason. I'm doing it for God. And sometimes we allow that to carry us through that I'm doing something for God. He should be satisfied with it. But God says, more important for than you doing things for me, I want you to spend time with me. And so I want you to set aside every day of your week. Six days, you could work and you've got work to do. But on this last day, I, don't, I want to get rid of any excuse. I don't want you to worry about work. I don't want you to think about work. I want you to be able to set aside a day to spend time with me. That's not too much to ask. To spend time with God. God wants to spend time with you. He wants to hang out with you. He wants to be intimate and personable with you. He wants to be with you. And yet we get so busy doing things for God. That we fail to spend time with God. We say this in the ministry. That the biggest enemy of the ministry is the ministry. That as a preacher, preachers are some of the biggest people who violate this. Because we're in the Bible all the time, coming up with messages. You know, just to preach like I do, it takes a lot of hours of study to preach like this. It's not just something that I just open the Bible and hope something comes out. It takes study. But with that, you also have follow-up. You have to check on people, hospital visits, other stuff. And there's a lot of good things that I'm doing and things that I'm doing for the Lord. But I can get to the place where I get so busy and my schedule so full that if I don't watch out, I neglect the Bible reading for myself. That I read the Bible for a sermon book to get a sermon out of, but I don't read the Bible to spend time with God. That my prayer life, I could get so, think, well, pray for so-and-so, pray for so-and-so. And what I end up doing is give God a laundry list of things to do and you need to get it, home before, get it all done before I get home or else, mister. That I fail to spend time with God in prayer and talk with him and ask him how he's doing and communicate with him and be with him. That so often, even in prayer, we seek God's hand before we seek God's face. We try to get things from God rather than spending time with God. We find that in Bible college. The easiest place in all the world to backslide is Bible college. Because you're studying classes about the Bible. You have to read the Bible as a textbook. You've got an assignment. You've got this. You've got a lot of things that get done. And so you say, well, I've been in the Bible. Isn't that enough? No. You need to spend time with God. It's amazing. Again, I'm trying to give illustrations to show you how easy it is that if preachers struggle with this, then everyone struggles with this. Um, Talked with a preacher not too long ago and he was saying, you know what, I've finished my series. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to preach next. I don't know what to do. Is God finished with me? What's going on? And he was explaining and not bad things, but he wanted to do the right thing. What about this? What about this? What about this? My next question to him was, how's your Bible reading? And he thought for a second and said, you know what? It hasn't been good. I said, well, that's where it's at. 
God wants you to be with him. You know, we're supposed to dig a deep well, but any well will run dry if it's not refilled. We have to spend time with God. We have to be with him. And we have to watch out for this trap that we end up doing so many things for God that we fail to spend time with God. Someone says, I'm too busy to read my Bible. Then you're way too busy. I'm too busy to pray. Then something's out of whack in your life. You need to be with God. That's the whole reason why God created us is for us to be with Him. In fact, turn with me, if you don't mind, to the book of Mark, chapter number <coughs> 3. Let me show you this principle here. Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. So Matthew, Mark. In Mark chapter 3, we have where Jesus Christ has ordained or chosen his 12 disciples. I want you to catch this with me in the gospel record of Mark chapter number 3. Gospel record of Mark chapter number 3. And notice with me in verse number 13. Mark chapter 3 and verse 13. And he, that's Jesus, goeth up unto a mountain, and calleth unto him whom he would, and they came to him. And he, Jesus, ordained twelve that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach. Notice with me in verse, verse number 14. I will often ask the question based off of this verse, why did God ordain or choose the twelve? Usually the first reaction is to send them forth to preach. But that is not why God chose the twelve. Notice again in verse 14. And he ordained the twelve that they should be with him. Then after they were with him, they had something to preach. Until we spend time with God, I have nothing to deliver to people. We have to have this time with God. And so... Going back to the context of where we're at, for the next nine months, they're going to be building the tabernacle. God, knowing us as human fallible creatures, knows that the, the drive of men is going to be, we're going to work, 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 work. And God says, I don't want you to do that. I want you to set aside a day where you're not going to work on purpose not going to work. To the place that I want you to feel like you cannot work. So that way you have a day that you are free to spend with me. Because that's the most important thing. Is for you to be with me. Now with that. How is your prayer life? How is your Bible reading? I understand we're busy people. And with our technology today, we have more time-saving devices. And you know what we do with those time-saving devices? We put more work. We add more things to do. We become more efficient about these things. We just put more on our plate. And we are busy people. There are lots of things to get done. But then we fail to spend time with God. We have to guard that time. We have to protect that time. We have to fight for that time. And that's the exact emphasis that God is saying. He says, I'll fight for this time for you. Don't work on the Sabbath. Because I want you to spend time with me. Now with this, we saw this. We started off with the context. We hit the command. But let's see the New Testament equivalent of this, of choosing the good part. Turn with me, if you wouldn't mind, to the Gospel record of Luke chapter 10. 
the gospel record of Luke chapter 10. And we could see the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, while he was on this earth, he had a favorite place that he loved to go. He loved to go to the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. This was his favorite place to stop outside of Bethany, which would be outside of Jerusalem. And he would go there, eat with them, spend a lot of time with them. And in Luke chapter 10, it takes time to give us a snapshot of something that occurred on one of his visits. Notice with me, if you don't mind, in the gospel record of Luke chapter 10. The gospel record of Luke chapter 10, and notice with me starting at verse number 38. Gospel record of Luke chapter 10 and verse 38. Now it came to pass as they went that he, that's Jesus, entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. Now let's pause there. Imagine what a great privilege it would be to have Jesus come to your house. Now, ladies, if you thought that Jesus was coming to your house, imagine all the things that you'd have to prepare. The house would have to be cleaned. The closets would have to be fixed out. You'd have to prepare a meal. There'd be a big to-do to get the bedroom ready, to get this set up, to have Jesus come to your house. For us men, for us, you'd say, oh man, what a great privilege. For the ladies, the first thing they're thinking about is all the work that has to be done in order to receive guests. But Jesus is coming to her house and Martha's ready to receive him. And there's a lot of things that have to be done. And the thing with receiving a guest is that you don't do all the work and then they arrive. But they arrive and then you got more work to do. And then you got work to do afterwards. There's a lot of work that's happened. And to receive a guest like Jesus, well, you want to treat him top notch. Verse number 39. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Verse number 40. But Martha was cumbered about much serving. And came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. Now here's the scene. And if you could allow me to use my divine imagination. Jesus comes over and he's at the house of Martha and Mary. Now, Martha, being the head of the house, the lady of the house, she's making sure everything is rich. She's got to cook. The dishes need to be prepared. The nice china has got to be set out. They've got to put everything nice in order. And there's a lot of things that need to be done. And so I could see Jesus is in the living room, and there's Mary. She's just sitting and listening. Can you imagine to be able to sit and listen to the voice of Jesus, just to be able to teach, and she's just eating it up. Meanwhile, Martha, I could see the hallway, and there's a big archway going from the hallway to uh, where Jesus is at. And Martha, every time she passes to go from one room to another to get something done, all she sees is, there's Martha, uh, Mary doing nothing. I'm doing all this work. And she could probably just shoot them glances, come on, and just going on and go to the next time and just looking at her, looking at the, and just getting more and more frustrated with every pass. All she sees is all this work that needs to be done. And Mary could be helping her out. Why can't? Finally, she has enough. She goes in there and says, I don't mean to interrupt this, but Jesus, I've got a lot of work to do. Can you tell her to get up and help me? The lazy bum sitting there doing nothing. Make her do something. Come on, tell her to get up and help me. Now, what she's expecting is for Jesus to say, all right, well, it was a good time. Go help your sister. But that's not the response he got. she got. Notice in verse 41. Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, 
Thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Martha, you got a lot of stuff in your plate, and you're worried about a lot of things. But let me tell you, Mary's chosen the good part. Mary's here hearing the word of God. Mary's spending time with me. Now, he's not saying that Martha's doing bad things. You know, for the Christian life, most of us are not choosing between the good and the bad. For example, when you get done with services today, it is not your choice whether you're going to go to the bar or not. You're not choosing whether to go do some evil thing or not. Your, your choice is not between the good and the bad. Our choice is between the good and the best. And the good is often the enemy of the best. Was Martha doing bad things? No. She was doing a good thing. She was serving Jesus. She was preparing for him. She was cooking his meals. She was making everything was ready. But the best part was Mary spending time with Jesus. And Jesus says, that's the good part. That can't be taken away from her. We're always going to have work to do. Always. It's not going to stop. But the good part, the great part, the best part is the never-ending pursuit of Jesus Christ. That we can get so busy doing good things that we neglect the best things, which is spending time with the Lord. And so what I'm encouraging you this morning is I'm not telling you that you have to choose between good and bad. That choice for most of you has already been made. You are not choosing to do awful things in your life. You are doing good things. You're waking up and going to work. You're getting homework done. You're going to school. You're getting lawn maintenance done. You're taking care of the house. You're taking care of the car. You're doing this. You're paying the bills. You're doing good things and things that need to be done. But we get so busy doing good things that we fail to do the best thing. That's to spend time with God. And that was the whole warning that God was giving. I'm giving you all these plans, 40 days and 40 nights, detailed plans of the tabernacle. Next nine months, you're going to be building the tabernacle, but let me warn you that you're going to get so busy doing things for me that you fail to spend time with me. Choose the good part. Make sure that you guard and fight that talk and walk with the Lord. The most important thing you could do on a daily basis is to be in the word of God for yourself. To be with him. You need to be having that time where you are praying and talking with God in prayer. Spending time with him. And again, because this is something that we're all liable to be guilty of from time to time. Let me just ask you, how is your Bible reading? How is your prayer life? How is your walk with God? We understand you are doing good things, but that's not the question. I'm not asking, are you doing good things? I'm asking, are you doing the best thing? Are you having that walk with God? Are you protecting it? Are you guarding it? Are you being with Him? 
Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you could give us a call at area code 920 920- Five three zero six three zero eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three zero eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.